We are so secure in our earthly security that we need not even seek any spiritual help. Daniel chapter 5 is where we go to today, and Daniel chapter 5 is a story for us of an illustration. Whenever God speaks to us in His Word, He communicates to us, first of all, the truth of who we are and our need for redemption, our need for forgiveness. And then having received that forgiveness, His Word teaches us of how it is that we as Spirit-filled believers are to live. And with each moral principle that the Scriptures give to us, it also gives an example, at least for each major central principle found in Scripture, then we also find at least one character in the Scriptures that teach us an illustration or an example of that principle for us to see that lived out in real life, whether it be a positive example or a negative example. And so the Scriptures might teach us something of the need to trust God when we don't know what He's doing, And then our thoughts will go to someone like Job. Or the scriptures may want to teach us of the need to uh, obey God no matter how hard the thing that he asks of us. And then the scriptures might point us to Abraham and Isaac. So there's examples in the scriptures that illustrate for us at least least every major moral principle for us. However, sometimes we find that there's a character in the scripture that will illustrate for us more than one moral principle... And then once in a blue moon, we run across a character that will demonstrate nearly all of them. And that's the one that we come to this morning, at least all of the negative moral principles, the don't be this and don't do that. So we come this morning to chapter 5 of Daniel, and we come against this character by the name of Belshazzar. And he is going to be for us an illustration of so many things that we are instructed in the Scriptures to avoid. And so that's how we're going to frame the way that we look at Daniel chapter 5 this morning as this man Belshazzar is given to us as a great illustration for a number of biblical principles. So we come once again to Daniel chapter 5 this morning. Now one thing that we've seen in our study through not just Daniel but through all of Scripture is that we see the unity of Scripture and sometimes the unity of Scripture can be artificially interrupted by chapter divisions. Our chapter divisions and our verse divisions are not part of God's Word. They were added by people that are godly and helpful to help us to be able to more easily navigate our Scriptures instead of me standing up this morning and saying, turn to Daniel and find the place in Daniel where it talks about Belshazzar. Instead, we can say, turn to chapter 5. That's really helpful for us. However, the downside to that is that those, particularly the chapter divisions, can create for us artificial breaks in the story that make it a little more difficult for us to follow the train of thought of the writer. So all of those chapter divisions were put in there for our help. They're not part of God's Word. And sometimes they can be a little pesky in how they interrupt the flow of thought, particularly in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, there are a number of occasions. We looked at one a couple of weeks ago, the the break between chapter 2 and chapter 3, where we saw that clearly the end of chapter 2 leads you directly into the chapter known as chapter 3, which is the end of chapter 3 is talking about this image, the statue that that Nebuchadnezzar had the vision of, and then beginning chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue of himself. So clearly the two of those were connected, and sometimes when our 
when we're reading and we come across that big block letter or block number three or five or something, then our brains will artificially think, pause, breaking point. Here's a good place for me to stop. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. Such is the case with chapter five. So if we can just ignore that big number five in your Bible, then the story will flow for us with greater connectivity to chapter four. So the story of chapter five really begins in the last verse of chapter four. So let's turn there right now and let's begin with the final verse of chapter four. And this should set up for us very nicely the beginning of chapter five. So at the end of chapter four, you remember from last week, chapter four was that chapter in which Nebuchadnezzar had the second vision, the more disturbing of the two visions. In the second vision, there's the tree that gets lopped off. He's the tree. This vision is telling him of God's patience with him, but his patience is going to expire, and this tree is going to be cut down, which symbolizes Nebuchadnezzar. But the stump is left, so there's still hope. If Nebuchadnezzar repents, there's hope for the tree yet. And so Nebuchadnezzar hears this. He's greatly disturbed by it. Daniel gives him the, the interpretation. And we saw from last week that the whole point of that, the whole, the whole reason that God in the Old Testament, by way of the prophets, would say to people, particularly kings, would say to repent and change your ways, was not so that they might be right with God, that they might be made right with God. Because we're not saved by changing our ways. We're not saved by amending the wrong things in our life. We instead are saved by faith and repentance. So God would say to Nebuchadnezzar and to others, stop your evil ways. And the purpose behind that, we saw from Romans 2, was that God in His kindness has patience and forbearance in order to lead to repentance. So the goal was that Nebuchadnezzar would repent, which he never did. But he nevertheless recognizes to an even greater degree the sovereignty of God, and the chapter ends with Nebuchadnezzar's extolling of the praises of God. Nebuchadnezzar had praised God twice before. He recognizes God's power. He recognizes God's strength. He recognizes God's might. And he does that to an even greater degree at the end of chapter 4. However, Nebuchadnezzar never repents. There's no faith there. Nebuchadnezzar was not converted. He remained a pagan. But at the end of chapter 4, he is praising God with these high and lofty acknowledgments of who God is, what God has done, and particularly the reasons behind that. So chapter 4 ends this way. These are the words of Nebuchadnezzar from verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. If I could, Scripture of course tells me not to do this, but if I could add an editorial note then I would add this, and a great example of that is chapter 5. Because chapter 5 is the illustration of what Nebuchadnezzar just said. And so we are given this story of King Belshazzar to illustrate in a powerful and poignant way what Nebuchadnezzar just confessed, which is to say, the prideful, look out, because God is able to humble you. And let me give you a spectacular example of the prideful that God humbled, as if Nebuchadnezzar was not example enough for us. So that sets us up for chapter 5. Now, that reminds us, really, of just how well the whole story of Daniel flows. If you've ever read through, perhaps, the book of Daniel and thought that Daniel was just sort of this collection of stories... There's the story of the furnace, there's the story of the lion's den, there's the story of the food that they don't eat, and then there's these visions, and then then it converts to this section of visions at the end. If you've ever thought of Daniel as just sort of this collection of 
episodes and visions put together, then hopefully you no longer think about Daniel in that way because we can see just how craftily, how artistically the book is put together. The point of the book, once again, is the sovereignty of God over the nations. And in His sovereignty, God will bring suffering upon His people, persecution upon His people, but He will preserve His people ultimately through all of the suffering. And in order to illustrate that, God will preserve His people through episodes of earthly suffering. So then we have the episode of the fiery furnace, the lion's den that's coming up next week, these sorts of episodes. But then we also have the visions interspersed in there. So we see just the beauty of how Daniel was a skillful writer, and he puts this together in a skillful way to lead the reader through the story in an uninterrupted fashion. And this is one instance in which if we ignore that chapter break, it helps us to see that. So now having set this up, there is this example, this illustration coming for us of the prideful man whom God will bring down. So then we read in verse 1, King Belshazzar. Now, how do we get from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar? I prepared you for that last week when I reminded us all that Nebuchadnezzar disappears in chapter 4. We won't hear from Nebuchadnezzar once again. He is done in the story of the Scripture. And so we were prepared for somebody new in chapter 5. And again, you've read the story, so you know. But the reader, if you can put yourself in the position of the one reading this, perhaps for the first time, you might be a little bit startled to ask, well, how do we go from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar? There's no leading information. There's no guiding information there to take us from one king to the other. So it would be helpful to just take a pause and and just inform ourselves as to how we got from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar, because a period of about 30 years has passed between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Now, before I do this, let me just be clear that as we look to secular history, as we look to the events of history, we never need to know those things in order to understand our scriptures. They can often be helpful and they can often help us to see more clearly and more vividly what God is saying. But I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that unless you know Babylonian history, you can't understand what God is saying in Daniel chapter 5. That's not true. But understanding a couple of things about how we got from here to there will just be helpful helpful for us to follow along in the story. So Nebuchadnezzar passes off the scene. Nebuchadnezzar, again, was the greatest king of the Babylonian Empire. He ruled for 66 years. He, as We've said this before. He basically was Babylon. But he wasn't the final king. So the final king of Babylon, history tells us, was the man, a man by the name of, of Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus was, secular history tells us, was the last king of Babylon. But our story before us here tells us of this king named Belshazzar, who is, as the story is going to tell us, you know how the story plays out, he is the last king of the kingdom of Babylon. So we've noted before that Daniel is one of those books in our scripture, all the books in the scriptures really, but Daniel is one of the premium primary books in our scriptures that liberal scholars like to attack as being unauthentic, can't be written when it says it was written because Daniel gives such vivid, clear, precise prophecies. So liberal scholars will say, well, clearly it couldn't have been written in the 6th century B.C. Clearly it had to have been written later because the prophecies are so accurate. So Daniel is one of those books that is fiercely attacked by uh, scholarly work today. 
Now, one of the reasons for that is because secular history tells us that this king, Nabonidus, was the last king of Babylon. But the story tells us that Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. So we seem to have a conflict there. And for this reason, many people have said, see, the Bible's not reliable. It didn't even get the last king of Babylon right. We don't even know who this guy Belshazzar was. Well, all of that was the case until a few decades ago when we discovered something called the Cylinders of Nabonidus. Now, the Cylinders of Nabonidus were this, this series of clay cylinders that had written around the exterior of them some of the history of Babylon. You may be familiar We see cylinders like in Egyptian history. Ancient people oftentimes would keep records on cylinders. And so we found these cylinders of Nabonidus that tell of of events in the Babylonian history that we didn't previously know of. And guess what? We learned this, that Nabonidus was the father of Belshazzar. And Belshazzar appointed his son, or I'm sorry, Nabonidus appointed his son Belshazzar as co-regent of the kingdom of Babylon. That was a common thing to happen in those days. If you read through the books of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, the kings, you'll find that there's oftentimes co-regents. That was one of the ways that kings in those days attempted to secure the throne for their offspring. They wouldn't wait till they died. They would have this period of co-regency so that the passing of power was more peaceful and more predictable. So... Nabonidus did this, and he established for the last 10 years of his reign, he established his son Belshazzar as the king of Babylon. But something else to know about Nabonidus is Nabonidus, he was the king, but he didn't really like being king. He liked all the power and the wealth of the thing, but he didn't really like ruling. In fact, he didn't even really like Babylon because he didn't even live in Babylon. He lived in Arabia for the last 10 years of the Babylonian kingdom. He didn't even even like the, the kingdom itself. Now, his son Belshazzar liked it just fine. So he stayed in Babylon, and he was the the ruling king, the son of the king. And that's how the Bible tells us that Belshazzar was the last king of the Babylonian kingdom. So now just a little bit of transition period. So Nebuchadnezzar passes off the scene, and then comes into place this next king. I'm not even going to bother with his name because, you know what, it does you no spiritual good to know his name anyway. And Babylonian names are, as you've seen, are really hard. So this other guy that will leave nameless, he becomes king after Nebuchadnezzar. He remains on the throne for two years. And then he is, like is often the case, he's murdered on the throne. That's often how kings lost their rulership in those days. Is There was a, just a lot of treachery, a lot of treason, a lot of murder. So he was murdered by his brother-in-law, who then takes the throne, and he stays on the throne for four years, and he actually manages to die of natural causes. But after he dies, his son, his eldest son, becomes king as a, and get this, child king. His son was a child. I don't know his age. I couldn't come across his actual age, but something kind of like King Josiah. A child king takes the throne in Babylon. He lasted for a period of weeks. He was murdered by a group of conspirators. And get this, he was murdered by being beaten to death with clubs. Child king. This, this is the kingdom of evil. So he's beaten to death with clubs. And one of the conspirators who pulled this off was Nabonidus. Nabonidus then takes the throne and he rules for 17 years, the final 17 years of the kingdom of Babylon. The last 10 of which... Belshazzar was also co-regent and actually in Babylon and more or less running things while Nabonidus was vacationing on the beach. So 
That brings us up to understanding how it is that Belshazzar here is on the throne, how we got from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar in chapter 5. Now, 539 B.C. is when chapter 5 takes place. We know that. We know the date. We know the year when chapter 5 takes place. We don't know when chapter 4 takes place. We made a good guess last week. It was about 30 years prior to chapter 5, give or take. That's kind of an educated guess, but about three decades before chapter 5 was chapter 4 from last week. So now if we do a little bit of math, we remember that Daniel was captured in 605 B.C. Now, 605 B.C., we said he was probably 13, 14, somewhere in there. So if you do the math, that makes Daniel now 79 or 80. He is very elderly, and we haven't even gotten to the lion's den yet. So Daniel, all those artist renderings that you see of this young man, Daniel, sitting in the lion's den, forget him. He was very elderly, probably could barely walk. And if the lions had have eaten him, he wouldn't have made a very good meal. So he's 79 or 80 at this point, And he is very elderly. And as we're going to see how the story develops, he is no longer regarded with such sort of universal favor as we saw last week in chapter 4. So that brings us up to where we are. We can now begin the story in earnest. All right, so now verse 1 again. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. So the story begins with this great party. We're told a thousand lords are there. Later on, we're told there are also wives are there, concubines are there, musicians are there, people serving drinks and food are there. This is a big event. Thousands of people are at this party. Interestingly, the chamber in which this, this party took place has been found. And I wish I'd written down the dimensions of it. I forgot what that, but there was, it was something like 60 by 170, a massive room, massive room that can hold a couple thousand people. So there's this huge party taking place and Belshazzar is host, hosting this party that's full of these lords and wives and everything. And as we're going to see, there's a lot of drinking going on, a lot of partying going on. But then there's going to become this crash of the party. From verse 1 again, he made this great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, I find significance in the way Daniel said that. He drank wine in front of the thousand. So Daniel, again, is a very skillful storyteller. There's two details in the story that he leaves until the end. We know what they are because we've read the story. The first detail that he leaves to the end is the words that are written on the wall and the meaning. He holds those until the end. But the other detail that he leaves out is this one little fact that the Persian army is besieging the city of Babylon right now. You wouldn't have known that by reading verse 1, by reading of the party. But as we speak, the Persian army under General Darius, who will become King Darius, is now besieging the city of Babylon, and they have been for some time. In the middle of this siege, Belshazzar is throwing this grandest of parties. But not only is he doing this, he's purposely and intentionally drinking wine in front of those in the party. And so we must ask, why? Why would Daniel say that? Why would Belshazzar do that? Why Why this display? Why this great party? Th- this should be a time not for partying, but for preparing for war. They are besieged, right? So a couple of things are going on here. 
First, it will be helpful for us to know a little bit about the siege itself and how that plays out and how the city of Babylon stood up against that because those details will help us, I think, to understand what's going on in Belshazzar's mind right now. So the Greek historian Xenophon tells us about this night, and he tells us about this night in great detail. He tells us of the Persian army that's encamped around and how they're besieging the city and they're seeking to take over Babylon, of course, right? But when we think about ancient warfare, ancient warfare was different than modern warfare, obviously. But in ancient warfare, the big obstacle, the big goal when you besieged a city, there were three things that you needed to overcome, three things that were crucial if you were inside the city that was being besieged, and three things that were crucial if you were the army that was besieging the city. Number one, you needed to have strong walls and strong gates. Because obviously, I mean, this is common sense, right? If you break through the walls, if you break through the gates, then your army can enter into the city and pillage the city, right? So if you were going to be safe during a siege, you needed strong walls, strong gates. Babylon had the strongest. Last week, we talked about the greatness of the city. We said that, that the outer wall was so thick that a chariot with four horses wide could ride around the top of the exterior wall. So the exterior wall was, according to Xenophon, 22 feet wide and 90 feet tall. 90 feet tall. That is a massive wall. That is an impenetrable wall according to warfare tactics of that day. There was nothing in that day that could penetrate a 90 foot tall wall. There was no ladder that could scale a 90-foot-tall wall. So the wall was impenetrable. But then the weak points of the wall, what's the weak point of a wall? The gate. And the gate is often how the city would be stormed because the gate could be burst through with battering rams or burned if they were wooden. But Babylon's gates were bronze. So they couldn't be battered through with battering rams. They couldn't be burned. The, The walls were impenetrable. In addition to that, Babylon had a system of inner walls and inner moats so that just in case the outer wall was breached, the Babylonians could sort of tactfully withdraw into the next wall, into the next wall. And so it was virtually unassailable by military means, at least military means of that day. But the other two things, remember there's two, there's three things that are crucial to withstand the siege, and one is the walls and the gates. The other two are food and water. Remember, that's how, that's how Nebuchadnezzar overcame Jerusalem a couple of, uh, well, 65, 66 years ago. That's how he overcame Jerusalem, by starving them out. Well, Babylon, ancient Babylon, sits with the Euphrates River running through the center of the city. So there's plenty of water. The gate or the walls of the city were masterfully built in which they spanned the river Euphrates, and the river Euphrates flowed underneath the wall of the city, so that there you, there was plenty of water. You weren't, they weren't going to be thirsted out. In addition to that, the historian Xenophon tells us that Babylon had stockpiled five years of food for all of its citizens. And so that you weren't going to starve them. It would take a siege of six years to starve them out. So they weren't going to be thirsted out. They weren't going to be starved out. And you couldn't assail the walls. In fact, Xenophon tells us that 
the Babylonian soldiers to taunt the Persian, Persian soldiers actually threw food at them over the wall as if to say, we got so much food in here, we'll throw you some. You're not going to starve us out. You're not coming over these walls. You're not coming through the gates. We got the river. Here, we got extra food. You want some? As if to taunt the Persians. That's how secure the Babylonians felt inside their walls. So now we see why it is that Belshazzar is comfortable having a party. Now, the reason that he's drinking in front of his lords, I think, is this. I think that he's drinking in front of his lords as this display to say, I'm so confident in our walls. I'm so confident in our defenses. (laughs) I will get drunk in front of all of you while there's the Persian army right out there because they ain't going to do a thing to us. So I'm so confident of that. This is what I'll do. Let's, let's all drink to our walls, right? And so there just follows this great drunk, drunken party and the king of the kingdom is inebriated while the gates of the kingdom are being besieged. So we'll talk a little bit later about how it is that the Persian army is victorious over Babylon. It's ingenious what they did, but we'll get there a little bit later. So for right now, we see that this man is just encumbered with absolute pride because this is an illustration of how God will humble the proud. And so here's a man so proud that he stands before a couple thousand people as if, as if to say, I am so confident in what has been built here. I'm so certain that let's drink to our safety. He is the illustration here. He's the illustration of the one who takes security and pride in earthly fortifications. He is the illustration of the very one who says, we are so secure in our earthly security that we need not even seek any spiritual help. He is the epitome of the one who takes confidence, as the scriptures say to us, we don't take take confidence in horses and chariots. We don't take confidence in Egypt. We take confidence in the Lord our God. He is our fortress. Belshazzar is the opposite of that. He's the polar opposite of the one who doesn't take confidence in earthly protections, instead seeks spiritual protections. So how often is it that we struggle with this same sort of thing, with with finding a false security in some sort of earthly wall or some sort of earthly gate or some sort of earthly provision? The Babylonians had five years of food. How often can we seek security in a 401k or some sort of savings or some job or some education that we've gotten? We are the same, only Belshazzar is this supreme example of one who's taking great pride in that. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website, where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.